I will invite you to turn with me in your scriptures to 2 Chronicles chapter 1, the first chapter of 2 Chronicles, and we will read verses 7 through 13. 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verses 7 through 13. Hear now the holy, inerrant word of God. In that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said to God, you, shall, you have shown great and steadfast love to David my father and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David my father be now fulfilled, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? God answered Solomon, because this was in your heart and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. So Solomon came from the high place at Gibeon before the tent of meeting to Jerusalem, and he reigned over Israel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Pray with me. Father, we ask your blessing on this your holy word. Open our minds. Open our hearts, open our lives. To that word now we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Our text occurs at a critical time in the history of Israel. After the time of the judges, Israel decided that they needed a king, like the other nations had. Samuel was instructed by the Lord to warn them of all that such a move would entail in terms of taxes, forced governmental and military service, and so on. But they would not be dissuaded. They had to have their king. Samuel felt the sting of their rejection for the Lord, but the Lord made it clear to him in 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, They have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. So Samuel appointed, uh, anointed Saul as the first king of Israel. But Saul's heart was not entirely faithful to the Lord, and he always felt that he had a better idea than to obey the word of the Lord. So the Lord rejected him as king, and Samuel had to tell Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 26, Thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. So God chose David, an imperfect man, yet nonetheless a man after God's own heart, to be the second king of Israel. And during David's reign, God delivered Israel from all their enemies. David knew that it was Solomon that would succeed him to the throne of Israel, and yet he was loath to pass on the reins and grew older and more feeble 
And as time went on, Adonijah began to set up his power base and to take unto himself the power of the throne, unknown to David. So in 1 Kings chapter 1, Solomon's mother, Bathsheba, intervened and brought David to his senses, so to speak, to officially solidify Solomon's position as king of Israel. David instructed that he be anointed by Zadok the priest and proclaimed the rightful king. Adonijah was dealt with, and Solomon's position was firmly established. The reins of royal power would pass from David to Solomon. At this point in time, Israel was on the threshold. They were on the cusp of reaching the high water mark of their cultural development. During the time of Solomon, there were very few military issues to be dealt with. Uh, David had dealt uh, with her enemies in near Palestine. Egypt was a waning power, was not much of a threat. The Assyrians and the Babylonians were up there in the north and the east, of course, but they uh, were not yet strong enough to pose a great military challenge, though that would certainly change later on. So without military enterprises to drain the resources of the nation, they could concentrate their energies on enhancing their culture. So you find that during the reign of Solomon, Israel would reach the height of its literary development, as expressed in the wisdom literature. Hebrew poetry was at its height at that time. Israelite architecture and art would reach its height as well, as seen so phenomenally in the building of the temple and the royal palace such that the visiting queen of Sheba was astonished that the half has not been told. But these greatest achievements are still in the near future from the perspective of our text this morning. And the young Solomon finds himself in a peculiar position in the presence of the creator of the universe, the covenant God of his fathers, the God who so powerfully, miraculously, and visibly delivered Israel from the bondage of Egypt. The peculiarity of his position is that the exalted God, rather than telling him what he wants Solomon to do, what he wants Solomon to give him in terms of service and obedience, God rather is telling Solomon, ask what I shall give you. Just imagine having a visitation from God himself in which he asks, what would you like? How many times have we seen variations of this played out in secular literature with a genie in a bottle or in contemporary culture with the publisher's clearinghouse or, or the lottery? And how many times have we seen unwise choices leading to the undoing of that poor soul that was offered anything they wanted? But Solomon did not make an unwise choice here. The wisdom of his answer is boiled down to those six words in the text. Give me now wisdom and knowledge. And that's where we will lodge for a time today as we explore the topic that has been assigned to me, epistemology, a biblical theory of knowledge. We'll be exploring two main points under this title, along with numerous sub and sub-sub points, the priority of knowledge and the source of knowledge. And we'll be using that outline that you have in front of you. First, the priority of knowledge. 
an unlimited opportunity. As our text informs us, Solomon was given, as it were, a blank check. God says in verse 7, ask what I shall give you. In verse 11, he says, because this was in your heart, and you've not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked for long life, implying that all of those items were on the table, so to speak, and more besides. This is a condition that is the envy of vast numbers of people today. Why do you suppose the lottery is so hugely successful in raising vast sums for the state's coffers, despite giving away those huge winnings? Is it not because the possibility of unlimited opportunity or near unlimited opportunity resonates so powerfully on the heartstrings of so many people. Despite the ridiculously infinitesimal odds of actually winning, and despite the pathetically sad testimonies of so many who, having overcome those odds, have found their lives completely ruined by their newfound wealth, people continue to throw their money into that bottomless pit in the fond and cherished hope of such an unlimited opportunity as Solomon was given here. And I would just note in parenthesis here that the God with whom we have to do is an unlimited God, not just a big God, but an unlimited God. He cannot lie, of course, or act contrary to his nature, but beyond that, he is unlimited. How do we describe his revealed attributes? Omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. The omni is Latin for all. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present. He's not limited. And so Solomon has no need to doubt whether God can fulfill the offer he extends here. Ask what you will. the proper priority. Solomon's response to this phenomenal offer demonstrates that he had a proper sense of priority. He has a proper value on knowledge. He knew the truth of the second half of Proverbs 1-7, that fools despise wisdom and instruction. And of course, he understood, understood the first half uh, of that same verse that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Though he could have asked for all of those other things, wealth, fame, power, long life, victory over his enemies, he knew to ask for knowledge and wisdom. This proper priority is something that on the one hand, our society and culture makes a claim to understand and value. How often do we hear that maxim? Knowledge is power. How does our culture, on the one hand, extol the vast benefits of education and learning? Get a good education, we're told countless times. Never stop learning. And yet that cry of the world rings hollow when you realize that it's simply a value of information that can help you achieve your particular utilitarian goal. It's not a cry to seek and find and know the truth. For there is no real objective truth 
in our society. Postmodernism has so infiltrated the public square that the possibility of actual knowledge, of epistemic certitude, of a true knowledge, of an objectively true proposition is absolutely, obstinately, passionately, and even violently denied. Don't talk to me about what's true. Tell me rather what's useful. What will get me what I want? So while our society makes a pretense of valuing knowledge, it is only a pretense. Truth as the objective quality of a true proposition just does not exist as far as they are concerned. Knowledge is only useful to the extent that it is useful on a pragmatic level. But in the face of this, we stand against the flow of our surrounding culture and insist with Solomon that knowledge and wisdom have priority. Knowledge and wisdom are in fact foundational, not just in a pragmatic utilitarian sense of helping us to achieve those other things we want, but in their own right. Notice again the priority of knowledge in Proverbs 18.15. The heart of the prudent getteth knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeketh knowledge. In fact, just read through the Proverbs and see the great stress that is placed on knowledge and wisdom compared to foolishness and ignorance. So we come to the second point, main point, and that is the source of knowledge. And we find first that there are only two choices as to where knowledge comes from. Biblically speaking, we have only two possibilities. Theories and philosophies have tried to explore this question for millennia with a multitude of variations, models, and ideas. But when we approach the question of epistemology from a biblical world and life view, there are really only two possibilities. And it has been so from the very beginning when God placed the newly created man in the garden. <clears throat> God, pre God provided man in the garden with a free choice. He gave him all the fruit-bearing trees for his sustenance. He equipped him to cultivate the earth and to subdue it. But God did place one tree off limits. He was forbidden to eat from the fruit of that tree. And the name of that tree is significant. It was not the tree of apples, despite all the pictures in the Sunday school books. It was not the tree of good and evil though many folk mistakenly put it that way. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From the beginning, man had two possibilities for the source of his knowledge. Adam already had knowledge, enough certainly to name the animals and to communicate with God walking in the cool of the day. God had created him with a certain a priori epistemic equipment, but Adam did not have all knowledge. He would have to learn more. He would have to gain more knowledge, and for that knowledge, particularly for that knowledge of what is good and what is evil, he could rely for that knowledge on God himself in his ongoing fellowship with him in the cool of the day, or he could try a shortcut and seek that knowledge from a source outside of God, a forbidden source, a source that would give him a first-hand knowledge and experience of evil by plunging him into sin and ruin and misery by disobeying God his maker. Solomon knew that the true source of knowledge was from God. 
And so it was from God that he asked for that knowledge. And in verse 12, it was God who said, Wisdom and knowledge are granted unto you. Throughout the scripture, we find over and over the clear teaching that true knowledge comes from God. Psalm 94.10, He that chastiseth the heathen shall he not correct. He that teacheth man knowledge shall he not know. Proverbs 2.6, For the Lord giveth wisdom, out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. Daniel, Daniel 2.21, And he changeth the times and seasons, he removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. Daniel 1.17, And as for the, these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. James 1.5, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him, not, not let him Google it, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. As James hits the nail on the head, if any of you lacks wisdom, don't, don't let him go to a tree of knowledge and wisdom. Don't let him find some source outside of God, not, not from what his friends say or from any source outside of God, not even get thee to a library. No, he points us to the source of knowledge, to the source of wisdom. Let him ask of God. That answer is not very satisfying to the world in which we live. It never has been. So history is filled with a succession of groping. And we come then to uh, the second sub-point, the groping of the world. And please, I am not talking about the groping of the world in the sense in which that word is popularly used in the media today, but rather in the older sense in which it is used, such as in Deuteronomy 28:29, as the blind man gropes in darkness. Or in Job 12, 25, they grope in darkness with no light. Or in Isaiah 59, 10, we grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. It is a fitting metaphor. Especially as the scriptures also speak of knowledge under the metaphor of light. As in Psalm 36, 9, in thy light we see light and numerous other places. So when I speak of the groping of the world, I'm talking about those attempts made by philosophers and thinkers to come to some understanding of how we know. And that, of course, is the epistemological question. How do you know? First, rationalism. There were those who were known as rationalists who attempted to demonstrate that all that may be known may be achieved by reason alone. Probably the most famous rationalist was Descartes with his famous, I think, therefore I am. He wanted to build his system on some self-evident proposition about which there was no possibility that he could be deceived in case the world was run by a malevolent demon who wanted to trick and deceive him every time he turned around. And that one proposition that by virtue of its very statement proved itself to be true was, I think. Well, Descartes was followed by Spinoza, 
who tightened up some of Descartes' inconsistencies, and Spinoza was then followed by Leibniz, who further tightened up more inconsistencies to the point that it became clear that rationalism could not arrive at knowledge. Reason alone was not sufficient for truth. I don't have time to go into detail. If you really want to explore this further, I simply suggest you get a copy of Thales to Dewey by Gordon Clark and read those chapters on Descartes, Spinoza, and Leibniz to see how rationalism ends in skepticism. Secondly was empiricism. Well, if knowledge can't be achieved through reason alone, perhaps it can be achieved through experience alone. This was the idea of empiricism, which is far more common in today's culture than the old rationalism. We find the first modern proponent of empiricism in John Locke, who uses the term earlier applied by Thomas Aquinas that we begin as a tabula rasa, a blank slate. Onto that blank slate come sensations, impressions that combine together in various ways to give us knowledge about the world in which we live. Well, Locke was followed by Berkeley, who tightened up some of Locke's inconsistencies. Berkeley was then followed by Hume, who further tightened up more inconsistencies to the point it became clear that empiricism could not arrive at knowledge. Experience alone was not sufficient for truth and ended in skepticism. Again, Thales to Dewey, Locke, Berkeley, and Hume. Then there's the synthesis. Well, if reason alone can't arrive at truth, if experience alone cannot arrive at truth, perhaps, perhaps some combination of the two will do the trick. And so here comes Immanuel Kant with certain a priori categories which give shape to the sensations and enable the interpretation of those sensations to arrive at knowledge. Then comes Hegel and his dialectic, which became so useful to Karl Marx and his philosophy, but in the end, the synthesis could not consistently arrive at truth either, and so again, the quest has failed. And again, we simply don't have time to do any justice to these developments here in this venue, so Thales to Dewey, Kant, and the rest. So we come then to solipsism. When pressed to their logical conclusions, these theories of knowledge break down to the point where you simply cannot, from their starting points, arrive at knowledge. At best, they end in solipsism. That is, the idea that, the only, that, that only the self exists or can be proved to exist or can be known to exist. I cannot know anything beyond myself. If I have experiences, I still have no way to get beyond those experiences to any exter exterior world. All I can know is me. But even solipsism degenerates into skepticism that true knowledge is impossible. At the end of the day, nothing is knowable with any epistemic certainty. And when you brush away all the cobwebs, when you clear away all the pretense, I believe that it is skepticism that has really captured the average man on the street today. I saw one of these programs where a man was on a college campus just talking to students, and one of the first questions he would ask was, would you say that it is possible that everything you think you know may be wrong? And I was quite amazed at the number of people, almost all of them, who answered, Yes. Yes. Everything that I think I know could be wrong. 
This is the end of all of that groping about. When you reject the all-knowing God of the Bible, who created man with the ability to know truth, then the best of those other theoretical alternatives must, in the end, leave you empty, devoid of the possibility of any true knowledge. So the third sub-point, true knowledge from God's revelation. Solomon recognized that God is the source of knowledge and wisdom. Now, when we speak of knowledge, it's important that we know what we mean. Definitions are important. If we're not clear on our definitions, then we really don't know what we're talking about. So as we ask, what is knowledge, we're going to be drawing a distinction between what some people might call two kinds of knowledge. I prefer to say that there's a distinction between two ways we talk about knowledge. That is the distinction between knowledge in its colloquial usage and the knowledge of epistemic certitude. Now I'm going to ask you to gird up the loins of your mind here at this point because some of these things are a bit intricate and require an increased level of attention. So take a deep breath, get some oxygen to the brain. And uh, Christian apologists often distinguish what may seem to be different kinds of knowledge or different kinds of truth. If truth is the state of verity of a true proposition, many apologists are nonetheless concerned to draw a qualitative epistemic distinction between the type of propositions we use every day, simply to get around, and those that are more fundamental, foundational, and of eternal import. That is, we may colloquially speak of truth on an everyday level, and I may assert that it is true that some of the drinks in the fellowship hall are diet drinks. I, I always think of Brother Randy when I'm walking through Walmart gathering all these, these you know, refreshments. Now, there are, many, there are many such common everyday propositions that we may speak of as true. Or we may speak of knowing these things colloquially. But these are not propositions on which I would stake my life and certainly not my soul. Francis Schaeffer, for example, speaks of what he calls true truth. That is, truth on which hinges the most fundamental and eternal issues of life. Others speak of truth on the one hand and, on the other hand, truth with a capital T. Others speak of the difference between truth and opinion. I'm, I'm not going to quibble about these different ways of expressing what boils down to the same concern, that there is a qualitative epistemic difference between the proposition I put on a red tie this morning, and on the other hand, the proposition Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead. I may prefer to speak of one of those propositions as an opinion, and the other is true, and only the true proposition can be the object of knowledge, precisely speaking. But if you want to talk about true truth or truth with a capital T, I'm not going to argue with you. And the reason I'm not going to argue with you is that the scripture also speaks of knowledge colloquially. I could give you a, quite a few examples, but for the sake of time, let me just mention 2 Samuel 11:16, where Joab, on David's order, sends Uriah to the Hittite, uh, sends Uriah the Hittite unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. 
And Mark 6.38, where Jesus, having asked his disciples how many fish there were, and when they knew, they say five and two fishes. Uh, loaves, that is, how many loaves there were. And in, uh, then Acts 22.29, and the chief captain also was afraid after he knew that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. Colloquial use of the term knowledge. These are the kind of propositions we speak of every day. And we speak of knowing these things, but we are speaking colloquially. We are not speaking with the precision of epistemic certitude, which is our next point. Is there really such a thing as epistemic certitude? Do we all have to admit, along with those college students, that we may in fact be wrong about everything we think we know? I may not be absolutely sure that I put on a red tie today. I may have colorblindness or something. I don't know. I can't be 100% sure that those drinks labeled as diet drinks really are. Is there anything that we can know for certain, or are we left with probability and opinion at best? Are the postmodernists right in affirming that all truth is person-relative and that hopes of finding truth in any absolute sense is sheer nonsense and that the best we can hope for is some kind of, of truth model that might prove useful in a utilitarian sense? And there are some Christian apologists for whom probability is the best we can hope for, and that's fine with them. Allow me to be so bold as to suggest that we can have epistemic certitude that we can know absolute truth, and that this truth is revealed by the very God who created us with the ability to know the truth. And the foundation of that knowledge is that the Bible is the word of God. In any epistemology, in any philosophy, in any system of thought, you have to begin somewhere. You have to have a starting point. If you do not begin, you never will have begun. And we saw, however, briefly that beginning with reason alone or beginning with experience alone or beginning with some principle of synthesis, these are not sufficient starting points to arrive at truth or knowledge. But that one beginning that does allow us to reach epistemic certitude is the Bible is the word of God. Proverbs 1.7 says... The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for not just some good works, for every good work. You recall that as Jesus stood trial before Pilate in John chapter 18. Pilate asked him if he was a king, and Jesus answered in verse 37, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And you recall what Pilate asked next, perhaps rhetorically, he asks in verse 38 that question which has occupied philosophers for millennia. He asked, what is truth? 
And though Jesus is not recorded as having answered Pilate's question on that occasion, he did answer that question just a few verses, uh, a few hours previous uh, when Jesus prayed in the garden for his people in John 17, 17. He clarified once for all the nature of truth. Specifically, he asked God to sanctify his people. And how are they to be sanctified? Sanctify them in the truth. And then we have that crystal clear declaration, your word is truth. We're told in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 3, the Lord is a God of knowledge. So how can we come to knowledge? How can we come to not just opinion, not just probability, but to epistemic certitude? The God who is a God of knowledge, the God who cannot lie, revealing to us through his word written in the scriptures, knowledge. In fact, all the knowledge, all of the truth that we need to know, he gives us in his revelation. It's with good reason that John Calvin in his Institutes begins with the scripture. He refers to the scripture as spectacles. That is, the Bible's not just something we see, but something we see through. It's through the Bible that we see everything else. We don't just read the Bible, but we use the Bible to read everything. This is how we interpret all that can be interpreted through the spectacles of Scripture. It's with good reason that the Westminster Confession, following in Calvin's train, says in chapter 1, section 6, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory for man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. They go on, nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. God, revealing himself in his Word, is the only way to come to a true knowledge of God. It's the only way to come to true knowledge at all. We have in the Bible God's propositional revelation given by plenary inspiration. I say that this revelation is propositional. Scripture is propositional. That is, it consists of the meaning of declarative sentences. Truth is propositional. Thought is propositional. It is saying something about a subject. Propositions have truth value. They may be true. They may be false. A proposition is a declarative sentence. Strictly, a proposition consists of a subject, a predicate, and a copula. That is the verb of being. Since the same proposition can be expressed differently using different words or even different languages, it is quite legitimate to translate the Bible into other languages. The medieval church was quite wrong to forbid the translation of the Bible into the vernacular. Now, our time is short, but I need to say just a word about the ever so popular claims of irrationality or irrationalism. This is one of the tenets of postmodernism, that truth in, the absolute, in that absolute sense in which we're using it here is not possible. Truth is not knowable. And here, at least with the man on the street, there's often a progression of these ideas, and the conversation goes something like this. 
Truth is not possible, says the irrationalist. Is that true? And if he's sharp, he'll see the problem and back up a step. Well, even if truth might be possible, it's not knowable. I just can't know if anything is really true. Are you sure of that? And if he feels the problem here, he may back up another step. Well, even if it may be possible to know, you, ju you just can't be certain. You, we, we can't be sure. Are you sure? And then back another step. Well, maybe, okay, I just can't communicate. It can't be communicated. I can't really communicate an idea to you. And, and, and oh, if I had a dollar for every page of philosophical work that tries to argue that point, we could have a great lunch today. I can't really communicate an idea to you. We can't convey our ideas beyond ourselves. Well, I, I think I understand what you're saying, that you can't communicate any of your ideas to me. It seems to me you can, communicated that pretty well. For the irrationalist, truth is not possible, not knowable, not certain, not communicable, not universal, and not rational. And if we are thinking biblically, we must affirm that truth is all of these things. Because we're created in the image of God, we can know truth. And he has revealed in his word all of those true propositions necessary for our faith and life. God is not irrational. God cannot lie. So something cannot be both A and non-A at the same time and in the same way. The law of contradiction is necessarily entailed in that statement in Titus 1-2. God who cannot lie. The law of the excluded middle is entailed in Romans 9.1. I say the truth in Christ, I, lay, I lie not. A proposition may be true or it may be false, not some hazy middle ground. Truth is rational. Truth is logical. The Bible is rational. The Bible is logical because God is rational. He's not irrational. He's not insane. So Johannes Kepler was not amiss when he spoke of us thinking God's thoughts after him. We don't really have time to deal with the debate in reformed circles over the nature of the relationship of our knowledge to God's knowledge, whether our knowledge is identical or analogical. All I'll say on that is that, of course, God is omniscient and thus knows infinitely more true propositions than we do. And just as my grandson may look in the sky and say, there's a plane. And my father-in-law, an aeronautical engineer who flew C-130s into hurricanes, may also look in the sky and say, there is a plane. There's certainly more entailed in my father-in-law's understanding of that proposition than in my grandson's. Nonetheless, the same proposition is known to both. And if there is not a single corresponding point of meaning, as some proponents of analogous knowledge propose, then either, one, God is not omniscient, since a creature knows something that God does not, or two, man cannot know anything, since there's nothing left to know that God does not know. And we're left again with skepticism. Now, obviously, 
We've barely touched the surface here concerning a biblical theory of knowledge. And I really intended this to be a sermon and not a lecture. And if you find yourself with questions about or interest in the philosophical implications of these things, I'll just direct you to Dr. Ken Talbot sitting right over there, whose grasp of these things on a philosophical level is much deeper than mine. I'm, I'm just a simple missionary trying to convey to a lost and dying world the huge importance, the life-changing and soul-giving importance of coming to a knowledge, a rock-solid, unshakable, epistemically certain knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What did John say in John 20, verses 30 and 31? Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And brothers, that's why it's important that we have a biblical epistemology. Not so that we can impress people at parties or on Facebook with our fancy theories and long words. Ooh, look what he knows. Not so that we can bludgeon people with our rock-solid logical arguments. I won that one. Not so that we can somehow make a name for ourselves as deep, profound thinkers. But so that we can point people to the only truth on which they can hang their very souls. So that by the effectual working of God's Holy Spirit, lost and dying people may be brought to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and so be saved for God's glory. That's why this matters, brothers. And may we ever be faithful to that unshakable truth. Pray with me, Father.